turning again this evening to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16, and verses 13 and 14. First Corinthians, chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all things be done with charity or love. Well, here is a closing summary exhortation. It's as if the apostle has laid bare his heart, he's given his apostolic direction and counsel to so many difficult issues as he's addressed the church at Corinth a church that had known factions, where some had fallen into sin, where there were many temptations laying in wait in a cosmopolitan city. And here, as he draws to the conclusion of his letter, he gives this five-point summary exhortation. And it's with an eye, perhaps, to so much of what he has already said in the previous chapters of this letter. Watch, he says. Be careful. Perhaps he has in mind chapter 15, verse 33, where he had warned evil communications, bad company, in other words, corrupt good manners. Watch, be watchful, he said. Whose friends, who, who you make and choose as your friends, who influences you, who you join in league with, because if you choose the wrong friends and you forge leagues with those who hold dubious doctrines or who do not uphold a godly life, they are sure to have an influence upon you. How many over the years in churches have not been watching as they've gone through their Christian life or even in their service? Pastors, even over the years, and I'm not here setting myself up as better than others. God forbid that that should be the case. But pastors, over the years, there is a, a series of sad histories of men who have been unduly influenced. They were faithful men of God, but they were not watching. And along with their churches... They fell away from that which was right and good. This was the problem in C.H. Spurgeon's day. I've mentioned this many times, but it's still important. He was almost a lone voice within the Baptist Union, a denomination that had hundreds of churches aligned to it in the 1860s and 1870s, many of them held to sound doctrine, but liberal theology had made, it, made inroads from Germany. And what we mean by liberal theology is a denial of the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. And Spurgeon began to speak out, saying, brothers, there are those in our ranks who do not hold to the clear doctrine of Scripture given in the word of God. And people began to criticize him and complained that he was a divisive character, but he wasn't. 
He was warning people who were not watching, saying, if you do not watch, and if you are not alert to the danger of these foolish doctrines coming in, they will ruin you and your churches. And ultimately, Spurgeon would leave that Baptist union. He had to. Few stood with him. And within a generation, almost all the churches within that Baptist denomination were swept away from sound doctrine as a result. Pastors have to watch. There has to be a ministry of warning, as we call it, in the churches. Some people don't like it when pastors warn against false teaching and warn against worldliness and the inroads of of those things which undermine the church. But it's vital, it's important, because the church will always be under assault. What did Peter write? Be vigilant, be sober. Vigilant there, it's a military word, so is this word, watch here. Be on your guard, be alert. Why? Because your adversary, your enemy, the devil goes about seeking whom he may devour. And you know, if he, can, if he can devour a whole battalion of Christians, if he can take a whole church or a whole grouping and denomination and ruin them, then what a scalp he has achieved. And so we have to be watchful as pastors and churches. We have to be watchful. You know, over the years, there have been many good men who have set up seminaries, training schools for young men going into the ministry. But invariably, and this is not suggesting that we shouldn't establish training schools for pastors, we should, but invariably within a few generations, they fall into the hands of the enemies of the gospel. Some of you will have heard of Princeton Seminary in uh, America. Jonathan Edwards, famous Puritan, was one of the principals. But where is Princeton now? It's far from the truth. People who ought to have been watching were asleep and Satan moved them. People arose in their ranks who began to teach doctrines that were not clear scriptural doctrines. Well, I must move on. Parents, we have a responsibility be watchful, says the apostle here. Watch. We have to be careful as parents. Who are we choosing as friends for our families? Now, we can't choose our children's friends ultimately, but we can guide them. We can warn them. We should not encourage them in friendships that will be ultimately detrimental to them. We surround them with prayer. We earnestly ask the Lord to give them a winsome and discerning mind. But you know, even amongst Christians, you hear from time to time of parents who allow their children to go on Christian camps, as they're called, young people's meetings. And I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage these things, but often you find out later that these camps have been a bad influence on the, on the children and the young people. We must be watchful. As young Christians, we must be watchful. Remember, bad company will corrupt 
good manners, good habits, just because someone says they are a Christian. And I'm not saying we should uh, be judgmental in any way. Please don't get me wrong. But we are to be watchful. Are we going to be encouraged into a worldly lifestyle to embrace all the contemporary music scene rather than staying faithful to the word of God and to clear uh, godly and wholesome behavior as young people and as Christians? We must watch. But I must move on. We looked at this word, this phrase last week. Secondly, stand fast in the faith. Well, this phrase, stand fast in the faith, it can legitimately be understood in two ways. And perhaps the apostle has both in mind here. Firstly, the sense could be stand fast in faith or in the exercise of your faith. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, the apostle says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith? There are times when Satan will urge us to doubt. Is God's word really true? Is the Bible really a book that ought to have absolute authority in my life? Should I take seriously its threatenings? Should I lay to heart its commandments as coming from God and good? He will urge us to doubt the faithfulness of God. When trouble arises, when our plans, best laid as they may be, seem to all fall apart, Satan will say, how can you trust God? Stand fast in faith, in that sense. Believe the promises. Give credit to every precept that Christ has laid down in his word, knowing that even when my back's against the wall, I seek to follow through the precepts of the Lord. I keep close to him. I do those ordinary, basic exercises, as we might call them, of a Christian. I don't abandon these things. I'm steadfast in the faith. I believe in prayer. I believe in gathering with God's people. I believe in reading and following the word of God. I believe in submitting to the Lord. And it, and even when everything appears to be going against me. That's what the apostle may well have in mind here. Not yielding to the temptation to act or react according to sight. What we see or according to our feelings. But stepping back and saying, well, okay, I'm in this difficult situation. But what does the Lord teach in his word? We can so easily be tempted by the enemy to focus upon earthly things instead of the things of God. Steadfast in the faith means that even when Satan perhaps blesses us with great opportunities and with great wealth in this world, we spurn them and we say, no, my heart is for the Lord and I must serve him first and foremost. We may be tempted to abandon our Christian service. We've not seen much fruit. Other people in the church don't seem to be pulling their weight. Why should I carry the can? Why should I soldier on? Satan wants us to give up. But faith says, 
I will serve. I do it as unto the Lord, not to get a pat on the back from fellow Christians, but because I love the Lord and I believe that he has called me to this ministry and service. Or we could take this phrase, stand fast in the faith, as stand fast in the doctrines of the faith. I think this is perhaps slightly more prominent in the apostle's mind here. Stand fast in the faith. The previous chapter had begun and he was challenging those who had rejected a key doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection. And now as he summarizes at the end of this letter, he's saying, Corinthians, there will be many attempts to dislodge you from those clear and fundamental foundational truths that you have learned from me as the apostle, your spiritual father. But stand fast in the faith. Don't allow others to rob you of that, those crown jewels of your inheritance what the word of God has clearly taught. We've already mentioned the doctrine of scripture. It's so vital that we cleave to that doctrine that what we have here is not only the inspired word of God, but the preserved word of God. There have been many suggestions over the years that have said, well, I believe God preserved, inspired the scriptures. But ever since they've been They've been translated, they've been copied. We can't be sure that what we have now is a faithful and accurate rendering of what Paul actually wrote. But yes, we can. If it was a mere human uh, work and it was a mere human book, then we would say copied down the centuries like Chinese whispers. It would have all uh, been uh, distorted. But no, the Lord has promised in his word that his word will remain. He will preserve it unto the end of time. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And so we hold to that doctrine. And when people say, oh, but what about this verse and that verse? We say, no, the Lord in his sovereign providence has preserved his word for us. The doctrines of salvation. So vital. Satan over the centuries has assaulted the doctrines of salvation time and time and time again. Why? Because they are vital. If you could summarize the doctrine of salvation in two words, what would those two words be? God saves. All the false teaching that comes in regarding the way of salvation changes the first word. Man saves. He does it by good works. Or if Satan can't get us to believe that, he'll say, yes, well, God does some of the saving, but man does some of the saving. You can believe. You can make a choice for yourself. Now, of course, the Lord does call us to choose that path of faith. But the Lord moves us, as we thought last Lord's Day evening. Paul preached. Lydia responded to the preaching of Paul. She attended to what he had said. But the secret there, God opened her heart. 
God is the author and finisher of our faith. Any of us here this evening, if we love the Lord, if we've got a tender conscience, if we have a love for the Savior, it's because he has planted that within our heart and we bless him for it. This doctrine has a profound influence on the way that the people of God seek to evangelize and win souls. If we believe that a person can save themselves or they can decide for Christ, as people say, left to themselves, then our approach becomes something like this. Well, I must persuade them. I must make the atmosphere uh, conducive. I must play the sort of music that uh, opens their hearts and uh, softens their thinking. But when we believe that God saves, and he saves only through the preaching of the cross, then we say as a church, as preachers, I preach the truth. I don't worry too much about whether the Lord saves ones and twos or twenties and thirties under my ministry. We pray for that, but we have to leave the issue with him because ultimately he is the author and finisher of our salvation. Christ from beginning to end. We stand fast on this doctrine as a church. We have to. And Paul exhorts that to us, for us here. The importance of holiness, separation from the world, obedience to the law of God, the Ten Commandments. These things are under attack today. And there are many churches that they'll believe in the right way of salvation. But then they'll say, well, you don't need to respect God's laws. We do, not in order to be saved, but because they are God's way. They are the rule of our life. They are uh, the example of Christ. And we hold these things. We stand fast in these things. But I must move on. The third phrase, quit you like men. Or you could translate this, act in a manly way. What is the sense here? Well, probably, first and foremost, don't be childish. Go back to chapter 14 and verse 20. We'll see there that the apostle used a similar phrase, or the opposite, really. <coughs> Brethren, he says, be not children in understanding. In other words, be grown-ups. Be mature in your understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men, or perfect, or ripe, mature. That seems to be the sense of the apostle here. There are times when Christians act in a childish way, and I'm not in any way meaning to be disparaging to children. Notice there in chapter 14, he says, in malice we are to be like children. Children are not malicious. It's as we grow older that we harbour deep grudges and resentments. Children can, but not to the same extent usually. And so we should have that childlike, humble, good-natured spirit. But at the same time, we are to be like men, in understanding, in discernment, in our quitting or acquitting ourselves for the Christian life. So be mature, the apostle is saying here. 
in your understanding of the Christian life. You see, the Christian life is a warfare. But there are some people who, they begin their Christian life filled with enthusiasm. They love the Lord, but then they experience the knocks and the temptations and the discouragements. And the Lord has promised nothing more. When Barnabas went to Antioch, he said, remember, it's through much tribulation, pressure, difficulty, trouble, that you will enter into the kingdom of God. That's the Christian's calling. Be men, says the apostle. A child gives up much more easily, generally speaking, and says, oh, I don't, I, I really wanted to do this, but now my legs hurt. It's wearying. And so we give up the task. But the apostle says here, quit yourselves like men. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And those of us who've ever run any distance know that there are times when we feel like giving up. When uh, the race seems to be too challenging. We're going up, up a steep incline. We just want to throw in the towel. But we are to quit like men. We don't give up. We look to the Lord. We ask him for fresh supplies of grace, of help and encouragement. It's a call to a self-denying life. And we need to be manly in our approach to the Christian life because we have to give up things. There will be times, young people, if, you, if you're called to follow the Lord, where you'll look around and you'll see perhaps your school friends or college friends and you'll see that they are doing all sorts of other things. But you've, got, you've come to serve the Lord. You've come to follow him. There'll be times when people will say, oh, if you hadn't come out on Wednesday evening, you could be watching England play Poland in the football. But you've come because you know that it's right to hear the word of God. We have to be manly. And there are times when our old nature will say, well, I'd rather sit down and just relax this evening. But I've called to equip myself like a soldier with a manly resolve to be wholly committed to the cause of Christ. Not soon shaken. Temperate, not overreacting. Men, mature people, if you like, tend to be more level-headed. In a crisis, they take stock. They commit to the Lord. But when we're children, we're much more likely to be alarmed, to panic, uh, to overreact to life's difficulties, or to embrace the, the latest fads that come along. The apostle says, no, act like men. The fourth exhortation here, be strong. He would use a similar phrase, writing to the Ephesians. You know the passage, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Perhaps Paul has in mind here, first and foremost, the pressure of temptation, or the pressure of persecution. They were not openly persecuted in Corinth as much as in some of the other Roman provinces and cities. 
But there was still the threat of persecution from the Roman authorities. And of course, there was also the pressure that would come upon them from a cosmopolitan city. If you go back to chapter 6, read the catalogue of lifestyles that many of these Corinthian Christians had been saved from. The pressure to go back and to follow the old life, uh, to go back to old acquaintances, can be quite strong. Stronger for some than the others. And we have to be strong. It may be that the apostle has in mind discouragements. Now when Adoniram Judson and his wife Nancy went to Burma as missionaries, they knew many discouragements. Can you imagine as a young woman, heavily pregnant, Adoniram, her husband, husband had fallen foul of the Burmese authorities and they had imprisoned him. And at night to stop the prisoners escaping, they would chain your legs together and then winch your legs up into the air. And you were left there and they were, well, you can sleep like that. It wasn't easy and it was very distressing. But Nancy, she went more than once to visit him to take him supplies, smuggled them in. It was no easy path. How discouraging it must have been when that baby, little Roger, lost his life. Succumbed to some uh, tropical disease. They had to bury him. So discouraging. And yet they were resilient. They were strong. They persevered in that work as missionaries. William Carey was discouraged in so many different ways in India. I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. On one occasion early in his work as a missionary, he thought, I need to learn the lingo. I'm not going to get very far until I do. And so he also thought, well, I'm not the funding that's being sent from, from Britain. It's not sufficient to maintain me in life. And so he became the manager of an indigo plantation. Indigo dye was taken from these plants. And uh, so he worked there. He witnessed. He was growing increasingly familiar with the dialect. But his, his heart was for the gospel. He wanted to do this such that he could extend the cause of Christ in that Indian land. But when his sponsors back in England found out that this was what he was doing, they completely misunderstood his purposes. And they said, well, we sent Carey to India as a missionary. And now we hear he's gone into business. He's working as a manager. And there were quibbles and questions and criticisms. He could so easily have been discouraged, but he looked to the Lord. He persevered, and remember there was no internet, no emails. It took months for communications by letter. And he had all those months to think, well, what are my friends back in the UK going to think when I try and explain myself? But he persevered, strong in the face of these difficulties. And we can so easily grow discouraged in Christian work. Well, I've 
toiled in that Sunday school class. Now I've got to hand on some of the children to the next class up. I've not seen any fruit. Some of the children, they just chew their nails or roll their eyes. They don't appear to be interested. It can be so discouraging. But we have to be strong and persevere. Or we may be discouraged by trials in life, troubles that come along, and when they do, and disappointments and great catastrophes may hit us in life. And then the, and the, the enemy will whisper into our heads, as it were, and say, you should have hard thoughts towards the Lord, negative thoughts. Why should, do you still believe in him? Isn't that what Job's wife was used by Satan to suggest to Job? Curse God and die. Why do you keep your integrity? Why do you still trust the Almighty? He's taken your wealth. He's taken your children. He's taken your health. And yet you still cleave to him. He was strong. But we must move on. Lastly, here in verse 14, let all your things be done with charity or love. Quite possibly here, the apostle has in mind a tempering of verse 13. You've got to be watchful. And when you see spiritual danger and compromise, you're going to have to stand against it. You've got to stand fast in the faith. And that may mean withdrawing, as Spurgeon did, from a whole denomination of churches because you see that they are beginning to embrace things that are wrong. As a young Christian, you may offend some of those other Christian students because you say, I don't see that the scriptures endorse what you believe and how you want to live and how you want to worship. It's not easy. But the apostle adds here, let all be done in love. We have to stand firm. We have to stick to our guns, friends. But at the same time, we are called to do so in love. We can decline those worldly invitations as best we can, charitably, lovingly. We may have to refuse to work with other churches because we can see that they are not like-minded and they've yielded or compromised on very, really important doctrinal matters. But we have to do so as courteously, as lovingly as we can. This is what Matthew Henry says on this verse. Christians should be careful that love not only reign in their hearts, but shine out in their lives. No, in their most manly defences of the faith of the gospel. There is a great difference between constancy and cruelty, between Christian firmness and feverish wrath and transport. Christianity never appears to so much advantage as when the charity, the love of Christians, is most conspicuous when they can bear with their mistaken brethren and oppose the open enemies of their holy faith in love. When everything is done in charity, when they behave toward one another and towards all men with a spirit of meekness and goodwill. 
In other words, the apostle is saying here, don't be hot-headed. You have to be firm, but don't harangue people. <coughs> be patient, be meek, be magnanimous and sweet-natured as best you can. Excuse me. Well, perhaps we could just dip into verse 15 very briefly. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have <coughs> addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. We'll look at this in a bit more detail another time. But the, the spirit here of these faithful believers at Corinth, they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They made it their business. Some would suggest this phrase means they, they appointed themselves to this ministry. Now, there are many people who try to appoint themselves to a calling which only the Lord can appoint them to. We can't have self-appointed preachers and self-appointed pastors and so on. The Lord guides and the Lord directs his people in those respects. But here is a ministry open to all. And these, the household of Stephanus, they, in a sense, appointed themselves. We will make it our business to give ourselves and all that we have to the ministry of the saints, to helping the people of God in need. What an example. What an encouragement it was to the apostle. Well, may the Lord move us to engage in such a ministry more fervently. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank thee for thy word, even when it speaks to us with short, sharp exhortations. Help us to lay them to heart. Help us to be alert, to be manly, to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ to be fervent, to be humble, to be loving, and above all, to be dedicated to the cause of Christ and to the ministry of the saints. We ask these things in the name of our great head and shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.